Okay, with Wayne for the Midweek Pod. Wayne, the big question of the week, I guess the one that everyone's been talking about, are City the best cheats in the history of football? I've got myself into some trouble today, Ed, talking to people on social, <laughs> social media about this. I noticed! Because apparently you can't have opinions on this sort of stuff because it goes into murky territory. You can't have an opinion with a City fan because a City fan will just say that you're bitter because City are successful and Manchester United have not been successful. However, it also seems you can't have opinions when it comes to Arsenal fans because Arsenal fans are tying themselves in knots about this. I know you've asked about City and I will give you my opinion on City, but I want to give you the example of two conversations I've had, but I'm going to mesh them into one with Arsenal fans today. So it's kind of like a, a continuation of the Liverpool one of recent seasons. Only the difficult point that we've had with Liverpool is that Liverpool actually bloody won some stuff. Unfortunate. So they've got more of a leg to stand on when they when they can talk about comparing their Liverpool team of recent years to the best in history. I might think that is ludicrous, but they've got a fair point to have that opinion. Firstly, because they're Liverpool fans and they've seen a lot more of their team than I have. Secondly, they've won yeah. some stuff and they can say, well, we won a Premier League and this uh, this is the team that we think won a league better than the other teams. Arsenal fans, however, it's a curious bunch because they haven't won the Premier League. They haven't won much of late. Yes, they won an FA Cup under Arteta. They haven't won much and a critic or a fair analyst depending on which of those categories you put Gary Neville into, may say Arsenal showed a lack of (laughs) composure at a vital moment. (laughs) See, I'm I'm avoiding the B word. Their inexperience resulted in a lack of composure and they threw away some leads and that has resulted in Manchester City winning the league. It's not the B word, Wayne. It's the C word. They choked. Sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, no, no. So, yeah, no, we've got to have some of you <laughs> in this podcast. So this can't just be me rambling on. Okay, so the the kind of points that I've been getting at me today are that, well, this is one of the best Arsenal teams of all time because they push this city. Or the City team's the best team of all time, according to these Arsenal fans. And Arsenal pushed them all the way. So, And this Arsenal team could batter any United team in history. So... I've used that logic because in a couple of years of preparing for these kind of conversations with Liverpool fans, again, a little bit more difficult with Liverpool because they won something and they were historically bloody brilliant. Arsenal don't have that history of being dominant and brilliant. They have history of periods of success and haven't won anything this time round. So one in particular comes onto my timeline. And so I just asked the question, do you think, because it was kind of like this Arsenal team would give any United Premier League winning side a good game. And then another one's sh- showing the points. Yeah, tally. I saw. Arsenal, mm. 86 points and, and United, yeah, 79 yeah. in the treble. Hmm, draw your own conclusions. I'm like, okay, do you think this Arsenal side... He's just asking questions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Is, is this Arsenal team the best team in history? And... Then they tie themselves up in a knot because what they don't want to say is that it was better than the Invincible side or better than any, either of the double-winning side. Oh, the 98 side, which was a brilliant side, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They were brilliant Arsenal teams. They were absolutely brilliant yeah. Arsenal sides. 
right? And I, I wouldn't contend that. I, I, I'm in an empowering mood and an empowering kind of sensibility where I would like to say, if you say your opponent's better, and then you might say Arsenal fans are doing that at this moment in time, then it makes your achievements better. Well, Arsenal were definitely brilliant in the late 90s and early 2000s because historically, historically, their record says that that's their most dominant period in history. I know you're going to finish your point, but I always find this kind of conclu- this kind of comparison across ages, and especially the points total one, just completely and totally and utterly meaningless. Yeah, it's yeah. just it, like you beat who's in front of you at the time. That Arsenal side was a brilliant side, and United yeah. beat them. Well, yeah, and and over that sort of six or seven year period, United Arsenal did yeah. have periods of dominance. Dominance, but United had a greater period of dominance and on occasion wiped the floor with Arsenal and they had more seminal moments and yeah, they, sure. they won the battle, they won the war, and as Alan Partridge would say, <laughs> they had the last laugh. Now, so my, my tying them up in knots moment is being kind of, well, you can't, if you're not going to go on record and tell me that this Arsenal team is the best Arsenal team of all time, which they won't do. They'll stop short at that because they can't bring themselves to say that they're better than the Invincibles or they're better than the double side because they know that's nonsense. So we rewind it back to your original point, which you said 59 <laughs> hours ago when you started this podcast and I've just been rambling. The point is about Manchester City and where they currently stand. Now, I didn't ask that, actually. Yeah, I know, right? I, and I've gone on about Arsenal. Right, they, last night they defeated an octogenarian uh-huh. Real Madrid side who who were always ready for that oh, pace. Oh, for sure. That pace happens, happens to every great side. They got away with it, what, three or four times in last season, Champions League? So, unbelievably. Exactly. And exactly. they tried it again. <laughs> so, it was coming. Yeah. And, and they almost, Ancelotti almost set them up asking for it and they got it. So, fair enough, right? That kind of cycle happens to normal teams when they fall apart. But you also felt that that was coming with the Manchester City side and they they annihilated them. Now, we've all seen in history, this is the pattern, when one great team comes towards the end of its cycle, another great team edges them out in an epic battle and you move forward. What happened last night was an embarrassment to football, really. Yeah. So coming, you knew it was coming, and they, it was embarrassing to see Real Madrid that far behind. They, it, and to me, that's not a champion. It's not a, a triumph of coaching. And I've used that phrase a few times when I've talked about Klopp and other coaches. But when you also look at the the league season, Arsenal have sorry, sorry guys, if you're listening, they've bottled and they've choked and they've thrown this title away. And yes, they might get to a high points tally and City are going to go over 90 and they're going to steamroll the league. And and everyone is saying, well, they've got to 90-odd points for 99 seasons in a row and blah, 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 blah. And that's reflective of how good they are and the quality of the league and all that sort of stuff. It's not reflective of the quality of the league. And yeah, all right, you can turn this argument around and say, well, I'm talking about United in the glory years and I want to say that that's the most competitive. That's what we all do as biased football fans. But by no objective analysis can you say that this is the most competitive league because that's, that point tally, that consistent point tally, shows that it's not... If a team as poor as Arsenal, and they're sure. not the best Arsenal team in history, as I've just proven with my 
razor sharp analysis. It's not the best Arsenal team in history, and they're clocking up ninety odd point. Well, eighty yeah. I eighties. They're going to get mid eighties, I eighties, right? And they're far in front of anyone else. Now that says to me that the rest of the league is bobbins, really, and that's a a, a pattern. Look, look at the the low points tally at the bottom of the league as well. It's kind of interesting. I mean, it, it just says there's a big difference between the top and the bottom. Exactly, it's, it's top heavy, and and it's it's a league now made for flat track bullies. If you're a good flat track bully, then you can put away sides at ease. It's, and the quality of games, by the way, is not any better to watch sometimes you get good games i don't the games are a lot slower in terms of um transitions like the, the, it's a transitional game where it moves into one phase moves into another blah 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 and, and teams move like that and fair enough that's the evolution of the game it moves like that but the ball's not in play for as long all these sort of old man <laughs> grumble 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 if you want to put that as commentary yep. <laughs> over this clip old man grumble unintelligible grumble all that sort of stuff exists in the game all right fair enough evolution of the game it can be better it can be worse but the, there's no disputing the quality of the league is much poorer now than it has been for 25 uh, years maybe, of the premier yeah. league because there's no real competition and arsenal I, i'm sorry to say that but they're not that good yeah it depends how you define yeah yeah no they're not this look it's not that good quality of the league is i think there's a big disparity between the top and the bottom and city hasn't always been there the case although because of the money in the premier league at the bottom side in the premier league can make 120 million out of broadcast they can afford more and better players than almost any club in europe right so in terms of the quality of players there's a lot of high quality players in the league and the premier league's obviously can do that because it's got so much money and and so on and so on but right up 15 years of Dhabi quote unquote investment in City, for which they've been charged 115 times by the Premier League and found guilty twice by UEFA of financial shenanigans. You can get the word out. They're miles and miles. So I, it's not. By the way, I started. I started asking you not the team, but the the biggest cheats. Well, I, I, you know me. It takes me ten minutes to <laughs> answer as dipl- with as much diplomacy as possible. But to close the point, big- I think this is a really average Arsenal side. I don't think they're that good. They've they've no. way, way, way outperformed their xG, and you're just like. I mean, if they do that for several seasons in a row, you go, okay, well, they've got better players than than the system is producing. And you go, okay, fair enough. But I don't think they will. In in a sense, they're choking, bottling. There's a reversion to them. The underlying data Mm. didn't support a a team that that was this good or got this this many points. And sort of the chickens came home to roost there. Then again, they chucked away leads against who? Liverpool? And Southampton, there are a few, and, and and that's the choking element. And the point Gary Neville made with the they were celebrating too early. They really were. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, it's not like any of us United fans. It's not just fatalism. Believed that they were going to do us a favour and win the league, so City didn't three times in a row. Now, I don't think anyone really believed that. They are to um, co-opt the vernacular, fucking snowflakes, aren't they? A lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> The, the Neville analysis is obviously the thing that triggered all of this because there were a couple of quotes that I, I responded to in tweets and by people who weren't Arsenal fans and they all sort of bombarded into the timeline as, as they tend to do. But Neville's analysis, uh, which has upset so many people, is the bottling thing. But the bottling, he was talking about the bottling thing, uh, one game, 
which I think was Bournemouth over celebrating against Bournemouth when they right. were 2 0 down and they came back to win. And he was saying right. Zinchenko celebrating, symptomatic of a greater mindset problem, all that sort of stuff. And he was saying it was one example of a greater issue, which, yeah. you know, is what happens when pundits give catchy analysis because that's what they're there to do. They're there to give you an opinion of an overarching theme, give one or two examples. And that's what they did. And they were like, oh, well, well, just because we celebrated winning against Bournemouth, can't we do that anymore? Yes, you can. Nobody's saying you can't, but it, you can't deny that it's part of what's caused the collapse. You what's the word for it then? No, no, it's it's. He, I think it's perfectly fair. I mean, I, I know he has to. You have to make it into a snippet to to catch the social media buzz and all that. So they're all very good at doing that. These just say it again. Just say it again. <laughs> yeah, I think he's spot on there. The other thing that I thought. And I remember, I think it was probably on the pod we were talking about it. He was too emotional, Arteta, in games that weren't that meaningful yeah. or routine stuff. And I thought, well, if he's going to be doing that in public behind the scenes, I'm not sure he's going to be given the, the vibes of authority with his players that perhaps he should do. And I think some of that yeah. is lack of experience, right? This is his first job. Maybe he'll turn out to be a brilliant coach. He's created a, a, a good Arsenal side that aren't going to win anything this season, but it's a good Arsenal side. They've improved from last season. Some props there, but just really having a go at the fourth official, screaming and shouting, jumping up and down. And I just thought, mm, don't like the look of that. And it's not just I don't like the look of it because I think it, those antics shouldn't be going ahead or some man commentary. It's more like don't like the look of it, don't think that's that professional, and it's giving off a bad vibe. So anyway, that's what I thought with that. Like, I wasn't surprised they collapsed at all. I mean, it's funny. of People of a certain age, me and you, we remember Arsenal being good, right? And we lived through it in our you know, earlier footballing watching careers. And there's there's just a little bit of me which was like, oh, I don't like the idea of Arsenal winning. I really don't like yeah. this. But of course, you, you step back and go, hang on a minute. City winning three in a row is much worse. At least at least on paper it is. So what I wanted to talk about was, well, apart from City's absolutely rampant cheating. Oh, oh, hang on, hang on. Let me, let me, I need to complete the point. Yeah, sorry. Just very, very quickly. Go on. On City, because I talked about, because I was railroading Arsenal for a bit, and I, yeah. I really wanted to talk about the Real Madrid thing. And yeah. obviously they battered them. And now in the final, they're going to face Inter Milan, who are the, they're not the best Inter Milan side I've seen. They're not the, no, better than no. the Inter Milan side who played us into in 99. They're not better than the Inter Milan side who won the Champions League. Very um, good in Italy at the moment. No, yeah, they're not. So. They're very bad. They've lost nearly a dozen games in the league. So yeah. they're going to also get railroaded in the Champions League final. Yeah. And there's nobody who can tell me that that is the equivalent or better of the Champions League, FA Cup and Premier League treble that United have won. I'm preparing, I'm getting it in early, like, you know, our, <laughs> yeah. my dad's bigger than your dad, my treble's <laughs> better than your treble. There's no even argument in it, but it's it's interesting to see the coverage of what happened last night. I've read a couple of pieces, notably Jonathan Liu in The Guardian, really tore into it. And I, I read that with interest because when he commented on United's potential takeover, he called it a potential end game for football. And I felt he was, I don't quite know the phrase for it, but it came a day after he was celebrating a Holland 
doing scoring nine goals in a game like he normally does and saying it's a, a perfection of Guardiola's vision. And it seemed a little bit at odds, the, the kind of statement that he was making. But yesterday, or this morning, I should say, his piece on on the game last night, he was quite vicious in saying, mm. effectively, that it means nothing. And you shouldn't be saying that when you've just seen Real Madrid, gone through the second, you call it the second golden era of Real Madrid, considering the first one in the 50s, they won five in a row in the European yeah. Cup. And they won a bunch in a row. So this is the second golden, true golden era of Real Madrid. Considering that it's ended the way that it ended, we've destroyed an empire. It does, you know What I was trying to say is the epic games that we've had in the past, like we overcame Bayern Munich and we overcame Barcelona in 2000 and like Chelsea in the, uh, 2008 and then Chelsea in the yeah. final, which was quite, kind of like a rubber stamp on that rivalry. And then maybe Arsenal in 2009 was a rubber stamp on that rivalry as well. The final one over Ferguson over Wenger. Mm. And, and you don't have that sense with this. You should have it. You should say, uh, and maybe City fans will look at it differently and say, oh, well, the, yeah, this is us proving we're definitely better than Real Madrid. But it doesn't feel like that. And do you know what's weird about it? Is that you shouldn't have sympathy for Real Madrid because Real Madrid were Man City before Man City were Man City. <laughs> so you shouldn't have sympathy for them, but you kind yeah. of do. And the way that you're looking at it, and very, very, very last point on this, everyone wants to see Inter Milan do what Inter Milan did to Barcelona in 2010. That's what you want mm-hmm. to see in the final. And what you saw in 2010 was a crime against football. And what you'll see, if you, they do it again and win in in two, two or three weeks' time, to do be, it. Yeah, but it'll be yeah. a victory for football, won't it? Yeah, you know, it, it will be. be. Yeah, You'll yeah. be looking and saying you've you've done something good against something bad. Whereas thirteen years ago, against Guardiola's Barcelona as well, it was a crime against football. What they did, what Inter Milan did, and you want it to happen again. They they had I can't remember what it was like twenty eight possession percent possession in that game or something. I, I yeah I remember I remember that game. Like that's yeah great analysis game. But uh, I I was in Berlin at the time. I, I was in Berlin at the time. So good, good memories of that weekend. Uh, yeah yeah crime against football anti football the whole the whole lot yeah. And and if they do that great. But I don't think they have to do it. I, mean, I the, the wider point about City like you know what aside from their. The, the cheating and what they're they're doing in response to that, which is obfuscation, deflection, flooding of the zone with shit, like having going procedural issues today. They apparently complained that the QC, who's leading the investigation from the Premier League, is an Arsenal fan, so they can't possibly. I mean, you, well, you got to find a QC that isn't a football fan. They'd find something else, right? This is the the City playbook. Anyway, aside from that, one of the things that Guardiola craves and he talks about it quite a lot is respect and he keeps talking about how he doesn't get the respect and he's never going to get it he's never going to get it because the view in England is that they've just cheated their way to the top right it's a state-funded bid and and the view across Europe is that they they're kind of nouveau riche they don't have the right to be there it's kind of sniffy isn't it they they're not established champions like Real Madrid or Milan or Ajax or Manchester United and they've just come in with all this state money, distorted the market entirely, and that's why they're winning. And and and, and Guardiola will yeah. never get that respect. He'll never get this, and the City fans won't either. And you know, when I, I was making that point about, well, there's something inside of me that, like, oh, I really don't want Arsenal to win, even though logically, of course, I want Arsenal to win this Premier League against City. The reverse of that is, 
I, I just can't get myself caring enough about this city side because it's just not real. It's all fake. Every single trophy has an asterisk against it. This is one of the reasons I'm completely against uh, Qatari's takeover of United, not only the moral grounds, which I've gone over again and again and again. I just think state money in football is a crime against the competitive balance of, of football. And that's what has happened with City. They may have done it brilliantly. Like if you compare what has happened at, at PSG, they've they organised the football club completely professionally. They've had the best people in, in play. They've built it around Guardiola. They use data and analytics to get the right players. And I suppose we could admire all the addictive wins that they've had on that front in order that their one and a half billion pounds worth of state funding cheating money has, has produced this team. But you can't get away from the fact that that's what they've done, right? They Like they have used, and it's not investment in some kind of amorphous sort of business sense. It's, that's not why they're doing it. Let's, let's dismiss that. They've, they're, they're doing this for the glorification of Abu Dhabi for the soft power it built, adopting of institutions, which they've done very successfully to get a foot seat at the table, that we don't talk about Abu Dhabi funding a war in Sudan, right? Or or, or, or or the many human rights crimes. We're not talking about that at all. No one's talking about that. Not in any single piece, not in that Jonathan Liu piece, not anywhere else, right? Just don't talk about it. We're talking about the football. And it's exactly what they want. That's the whole fucking point. Anyway, uh, it's those reasons I, I just can't get myself caring about this city side, the football piece of it, very much, yeah. honestly. It's fake. And the beautiful, beautiful irony of it all, and despite what I just said about Arsenal absolutely running them into the ground, the if there's been a triumph of coaching in the, in the title race, it's been Arteta's with a team that's spearheaded by two city rejects. <laughs> Just, the irony is he will get the credit for a good coaching job this season. Probably the, well, not probably the best, but one of the best in the league. Certainly more creditable than Guardiola's because his was the harder job and he's done a better job. Yeah. Everybody expects what City have done there. Even them coming back, winning eight in a row, it's like, oh, City being City again. Which... We all expected it, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 maybe we're all being unfair on Guardiola. Maybe he's the best of the best that there's ever been, and and he he produces sides. I mean, I don't find them entertaining. Actually, I think I think the overemphasis on control actually sucks the entertainment out. It's part of the point, yeah. right? So, it, it's it, maybe he's the best of the best. Who knows, right? But he he's only ever coached with a cheat code, and I think that's that is a a fair question. He had Messi, like the greatest player that's ever lived and uh, and a bunch of other players as well who all came together at the right time. Yeah. Maybe that was his doing in the same way Fergie moulded class of 92 into a brilliant side. He had, he was at Bayern, didn't manage to win the European Cup, but he won the league, big fucking deal. Who doesn't win the league with Bayern? And they had some embarrassments. He had some embarrassments at Bayern. Some big embarrassments. He did there. do. He did do. Yeah, he did do, especially in the Champions League. And then he's been at the city with all this state-funded wealth. And of course he's not going to get the respect he wants when you have a career like that. I mean, the the best stuff was obviously, obviously at Barcelona. Uh, but he did have Messi, Xavi, Iniesta all at the same time. And Messi being the biggest cheat code of the lot. Because, like, what can you do? Uh, as we found out in 2009 and 2011. Uh, yeah. 
Oh, you, you make your bed, you lie in it. I've, I've long had that theory about his his coaching ability. That yeah, he may well be the best coach in the world, but you don't know. So if and I'm not accepting, I'm not accepting anything post Barcelona as evidence for it. And I would like we've just argued news Bayern as a reason against saying why he's the greatest of all time, because I don't think that that's evidence for any great success. I don't think he particularly laid, laid any groundbreaking revolution for, for them to for them to follow when he left. And, yeah, I don't see what he's done at City as, as evidence of his greatness either. I mean, as you look at great coaches, I'm talking seminal great coaches, of the likes of Ferguson, Paisley, Shankly, Busby, even Wenger, Clough, and others internationally, the the predecessors of Guardiola that he so professes to be following the, the likes of Cruyff and the the people before Cruyff who, who were revolutionising sort of football and yeah. Guardiola is meant to be the perfectionist of it. He's not. If anything, it's kind of like a bastardization of that because it's not it's, it goes against the essence of what that was meant to be. It's about coaching players to be. Uh, don't get me wrong, there is an element of this in there. So if someone listens to this and says, "Oh, nobody does do this," obviously, no argument with this is absolute. You're not saying this happens in absolute terms. There is an element to what he does. Obviously, he coaches the players to be multifunctional in the way that total football was meant to be in, yeah. in the original aspects of it, but he's doing it with the best players in the league and he's not coaching them to be better. If they're not good enough, he goes and spends 200 million on a new defense because he doesn't like the one that he got a year before. That's not coaching. That's not good coaching. No, he, he wants players who will follow the prescripted plan. Very, in very, very, I mean, he's the most prescriptive coach in world football, right? When you're in zone 14, you have to be in exactly the right position and players who can't follow that are out of the team. Yeah. I mean, what he does do is is get players to perform in that in, in specific roles that you wouldn't expect. John Stones in midfield wouldn't expect that, but he does the role that he wants to, especially like shutting down the transitions, right? So they're not conceding goals on the, on the break anymore. Um, and, and so he's like, he has this mapping of what's happening happening. Uh, on the pitch and with his team and with the opposition down, and he he does he he came up with this, I mean basically a three two four one system, in order to solve their defensive issues while building a team around Harland, and he's he, it's a, a little bit more direct in some games than that, that has ever been in the past to serve Harland. That's a, like getting the ball forward. I don't mean lumping it long. In that aspect, he's been adaptable, but it's mostly around his plan, where you should be at a specific time, a specific phase of play, when the ball's in a specific area, and, and that's what he does really well. But you're right, at City, if he didn't like the fullback, he spent £50 million on a new one. If he didn't like them, he'd bin them off because it's never going to be a problem getting a new one, and if they have a problem with FFP because they're spending too money, they just invent some sponsors or hide something or look into any of the other 150 charges that the Premier League laid out for exactly what they did. And then they lie, cheat, withhold information, deflect and bullshit their way through any slow-moving investigation process afterwards. Fuck them. Fuck them all, Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Have we got anything else to talk about rather than City and, and Arsenal? We must have got something. Well, the news since we last recorded a pod on the takeover front is that there's been an upped bid from the Qataris. The leaks are interesting because they're clearly coming from Rain Group to try and create an auction that doesn't exist. Mm. And so it seems like the bid is 5.6 billion, but a billion of that are promised future investment. So discard that because it doesn't mean anything. That's just for PR. The Glazers obviously don't care about promised future investments, whatever that means. 4.6 as the enterprise value minus the debt, which is 500 and something, so four-ish, right? And it it kind of got me thinking that, and and Ratcliffe's bid is probably slightly bigger, but for a smaller percentage of the club, which would be very typical to value each share slightly more highly in that scenario. Ratcliffe's bid isn't anywhere near what the Glazers want either. They just value the club much, much more than the market is valuing the club, much more. There hasn't been a long list of suitors and part of that's to do with the, the current economic environment and interest rates being high and all of that harder to borrow. But they want a really big fee for a club that's, economically speaking, kind of failed. It doesn't doesn't really, I mean, makes a lot of a bit dark, but doesn't make any real profits and mm. needs a huge amount of investment in infrastructure in order to, to compete with the elite clubs in Europe. So it's kind of, yeah, anyway, that's what's happened this week. Kind of got me thinking about, yeah, how little the the market has valued United and and where we might be headed with this. Yeah, this is the news. Uh, okay, so my opinion on this, I think the last time we talked, my I think I said that my stand was that I just wanted it to be resolved quickly because I don't think it befits anyone. No one comes out of it with any credit the longer it drags on, and it's dragged on for the period six months now. This point. Yeah. Well, even from the last time that we talked, said so. It, is it necessary? I don't think it's necessary now. We we must be in some kind of decisional decisional. The right word. There, there must <laughs> yeah, be I some, don't think so. But yeah. no, yeah, see, I know what you, you mean. Thought, <laughs> you would have thought that a writer would know words. Me, no words. Okay, yeah, so, but but writing but, and speaking are two different skills, Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, excel at neither. Jack of all trades, master of none. We should be at some kind of end game in terms of, regardless of what we're saying about where we are in the process, they must yeah. have had A, some kind of figure in their mind, B, some kind of, like when you're going to buy a house or when you're going to do anything, a big purchase, a car or something, or a holiday even, even a holiday, you have a, a feeling this is the gut feeling. This is what I want to spend. This is where yep. we want to go. This is what we're going to do. And then you settle on it, and then you move forward. You make that decision. You come to peace with that decision. And what I'm trying to say is that decision must have been reached at some point. Whether or not they're comfortable or uncomfortable with move, moving the club on, for the size of the decision and the size of the money, all of the moving pieces in it, somewhere along the line, the main protagonists... It, in all parties, the Glazers, Ratcliffe, and whoever the shake is. Yeah. yeah. So all of those parties must have some degree of comfort of where they are. This isn't some kind of to in and fro in. It's kind of like, these are the battle lines. This is what we're prepared to accept. The ones who, who know where this is going to go, the ones who should know are the rain group 
and the Glazers, right? They yeah. should have a very, very clear picture of well, what's I happening think, now. I think that's not clear, actually. So, I, I, I mean, the rain group, their interest is just jacking the price up as much as possible. So they're trying to create an auction from two bidders. And it's, it's what I'm, I'm trying to say, yeah. that, Ed, though, is, yeah. is that it shouldn't be like that at this point. That's the concerning point. The point, if, if you're eight months into this kind of process, you should have a very clear picture of where, at this moment in time, considering you've had four rounds of bids, there's only two bidders in there, the prices are fairly similar. They're not, well, they are miles apart in terms of it being £1 billion, but in terms of the, the dynamics of this deal and the structuring and everything like that. So they yep. must have an idea of the kind of setup, especially the Glazer family or Joel and Avram. Um, is it Joel and Avram who were... Is it Joel and Avram who are the, the Joel and Avram are the, yeah, the ones holding they're, they're, on. They're the ones holding on, yeah. Everyone okay, else wants so out. They, everyone knows where they stand in this process, and the only people who don't seem to know is, is the supporters. Now, all they, I'm not saying at this point that they should come out and do that. I just think that we should have some acceleration of the process, whether it's not whether or not it's like the club sale is off the table, which seems unlikely at this point. I, I just feel like and maybe it is. Maybe over the last couple of days, we have heard murmurings that Ratcliffe has, has been identified as a, the, the preferred bidder. I'm beginning, to, I'm beginning to think since that was not made formal, and, and yeah, who exactly. knows? But I, I'm beginning to the... think that was just to smoke the Qataris out for another bid. Exactly. And that's the thing. That's the thing is, at this moment in time, there's no clarity, and I don't think, and I, to use the phrase again, it doesn't, it's not befitting of United for this to linger on the way that it is. It's not helping no, it's, anyone it, in it's the not. process. It, I mean, it, look, we talked before about Ten Hag being frustrated, and he will be. And, and the planning, Murta and his and uh, O'Brien and the football planning department and the head of negotiations and the scouts and stuff like that, they can't make any decisions about the summer window because we don't know what the budget is. Now, you can take the budget from operations and go, hey, this is about what we're planning and FFP limits. We'll say, let's just say 100 million or something like that. You can do that. But given given how the Glades have, have acted over the last 20 years, they've had to sign <laughs> off on every single purchase. And I don't just mean players. I mean equipment in the gym and the size of bottles of water and stuff like that, right? So, and whether you get paper clips and uh, all the cheap paper clips or the the high quality paper clip in the office, right? It's it's been micromanaged, and and so they will certainly have a say uh, on the transfer window. And we're a month out from the window opening, so there's absolutely no doubt that, given that many transfers are planned a year in advance, that United will miss out on players that they might have wanted as a result of this sale process dragging on. And it's dragging on, let's be honest, because they're trying to create an auction that doesn't exist with two parties for different reasons that aren't, quote-unquote, going to blow anyone out of the water. And I think there's there's different reasons for that. Ratcliffe's obviously a value investor, always was back from his PE days. They, they do spend a lot of money at Ineos because it is a capitally intensive industry, petrochemicals, and they have to build new plants, which cost billions of dollars. And they take out these huge bonds in order to pay for that. And a lot of people on the internet do not understand. Honestly, I'm so sick of arguing with people on the internet who are fucking bedroom analysis of corporate management. I don't want to wave my credentials dick around here, but if quite good right so i know what i'm talking about um he does uh, he does <laughs> i'm not going to give you the cv but anyway 
It's better than it mine is... for, for for talking and writing anyway. <laughs> uh, no, no, definitely not. Definitely not better CV on the talking and the writing front. When it comes to corporate M&A, I do know something. Anyway, so, you know, Radcliffe's bid is a certain level because not because he can't afford it. He's one of the three founders of a 60 billion euro company. They can most definitely afford it. However, that is structured in in terms of cash and and, uh, leverage. But because he has a certain kind of bid, a certain kind of number in mind for what is value for United. And he's gone way, way above that because this is emotional for him. Undoubtedly. Right. And there's a really good piece in the FT by Simon Cooper today, which basically says this. Billionaires think they're going to rationalise it and say, hey, we're buying a football club because we can make money out of it. And they may do down the line, but the the reality is it's vanity, right? This is ego. This is a penis extension, as Dan would call it. Whatever whatever reason, this is about vanity, and that's why he's doing it, and that's why he's bid way, way above the actual enterprise value for United, but not way so much that it's blowing everyone out of the water. And then you come to the Qataris who haven't done that either. And it is a state bid, whatever people want to pretend. It's a state bid, right? You cannot be a member of the royal family in absolute monarchy and go spend his money. That is the emir's money without permission. So I started to think, well, why haven't they done that? Like, what, what part of the politics here is getting in the way of them spending five, six, seven billion pounds, whatever, just to get it done? And so something's happening behind the scenes that we don't know. And it is interesting why that hasn't happened, uh, whether it's, you know, recent losses that are well publicised from the investment fund or internal politics or whatever. I don't know. But uh, they haven't done it, which means Ratcliffe's still in play. But to your point, like this, the process being dragged out helps nobody except the Glazers and not even really them because they could just cash out and take their money. Exactly. You know, yeah, yeah they're going to they're gonna make whether it's now or with the put and call provisions in two, three, four years' time, they're going to make about £500 million each, give or take a little bit. And and on a club with which they invested about 140 at the beginning. The whole family, that is. That's Malcolm, right? And between yeah. the six, Joel, Avram, Edward, Brian, Darcy, and the other one whose name I always forget because they're so completely meaningless, uh, they will make five hundred million pounds each. You can go off and invest that if you want to make some more money. If five hundred million is not enough for you, or you can buy a yacht, or you can go to Disney World every day for the rest of your life. Whatever, right? Take the money, run, enjoy your life, folks, and just let us get on with the football. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. Just remember, everyone. Like this is going to sound very doom and gloom. There is a cup final on the horizon. There is. Could end very badly if it does or if it doesn't. But it's still a football club. It's still our football club. Whoever is the custodians of it, whoever's the owners of it, they don't own the history. They don't own the future memories that you've got. I I feel like I've said all this before, but I, I just feel like there's been a very disconcerting time for everyone who supports United for, for a multitude of reasons, the political uncertainty that you feel about the potential owner, the potential argue, arguments that you get into about the, the rights and wrongs about what you feel about it. At the end of the day, we support a football club, right? All the memories that you've got are supporting a football club, 90% of them, unless you're a militant protester, and a lot of people are, and fair play to them. And I'm mm-hmm. not saying that they're supported and 
is more or less. It's a different form of it. Perhaps even perhaps even it is more. Perhaps they do care more than what I do. I like to think I care very much about the club. I, I love it. I love it so much. I think about it all the time. I'm compelled to come on here and talk to you about it every week. I enjoy it. I love talking about it all the time. It's not a chore. I absolutely love talking about the memories that the club's given me. I'll talk about the past before I was born. I'll talk about the future and what could be and, and the legacy and the identity and the history of the club. It belongs to nobody and nothing apart from the supporters who were there to provide the soundtrack and the supporting and the backing and the players and the coaches who, and, and the other staff who created that identity and legacy. That's who it belongs to. So in the in the sort of coming weeks and months, and yeah, all right, part of our purpose or part of the thing that we do on this podcast and, and elsewhere when we talk about football is to kind of provide that kind of sounding board or something. To, to People want to listen to what other people think about the takeover and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Then yeah, all right, we're, we're here for that as well. But at the end of the day, try to ascertain the bigger picture in this. The bigger picture is the football club, and we might get taunted in the, in the cup final, but it won't mean anything because they're not that good. It won't be a victory for coaching or anything like that. But in the <laughs> coming months and years, we've got Eric Tenorg. He's a good manager. We're still following the same kind of principles in in our kind of way, in a modern kind of way. He's trying to be respectful of the youth heritage of the club, and I think I think that... United, as a club, still retains a lot of the muscle muscle memory and core memory. Now, this is going to sound too poetic or anything like that, but I still feel that United, like Liverpool, you know what I'm trying to say, it's still as a heritage, as a football club, that's, sure. it pays respect to its cultural past and its cultural identity. And those things belong to us. They belong to us. We understand it. So it doesn't matter in a certain way. Yes, it matters for the health of the club. Yes, it matters for the, the transfer policy of the club and everything like that. But at the end of the day, these are things that we can't affect. Well, the things that we can affect are getting behind the team on a Saturday yeah. or, or, a, or a Thursday at 8pm, I should say. The more <laughs> traditional kickoff times. They're, they're the things that we can kind of influence. And we don't have a game this week, so that's why we've talked so much about all this sort of stuff, I guess. Just one thing you said about owning owning the history in the past and our cultural identity, and, and all of that is really important. I put that in my newsletter this week, thinking about that and that the, the new owners need to respect that. One of the biggest challenges I have with state ownership is the co-opting of that, right? So if, if, the Qatar, if Qatar took over and they had some pictures of the Busby Babes and they stick a... Qatari flag on there or something like that. Look at what Abu Dhabi have done with past players and stuff. Is that acceptable? That that's what I'm saying. Like you become a pawn in in their in their political ambitions in a state club. It's it's interesting that in recent weeks that Paris Saint Germain fans have been protesting against that. And I think it's been framed in the English media as a kind of they're not doing that well. So like kind of entitled Paris fans have been have been writing about it. And there may be some of that. Although, actually, if you see what the banners say, it's not that, you know? And I, I think there is a set of Paris Saint-Germain fans who also recognise that they are weaponized for the greater glory of, of a state. And, like, you know, go, go read some of the banners. Interesting what they say. You're, you're not, you are not us. And stuff like that, and I do think that's really important to think about what happens to our very storied 
history that we're very proud of when when the goals are completely asynchronous to that, really. They're about glory for someone else. Ratcliffe's slightly different. Dan and I talked about it a few times, which is it's a vanity project for him. And you can point to his season ticket at Chelsea and go, well, he's not a real fan. Um, but he clearly cares. It's clearly emotional for him to, to bind to United. And and whether you like him and his politics and his company and his and what they do or not, his interests, the club's interests and our interests of fans are much, much more aligned, for better or worse. We all want the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's not true of a state bid. So. Uh, you know, United have got a long and peculiar history with with their ownership. Yeah, Davey, yeah. Davies and It's Gibson. never been clean, has it? Well, I was going to I was talking more from an aspect of benevolence and Gibson and and Davies mm-hmm. were benevolent owners, but apart True. from that, I mean, we'd not I mean, the Edwards family, look, full disclosure, I know Martin Edwards not really well, but enough that I've worked with him a few times. and Yeah, yeah. hanging around the toilets, all that kind of stuff. Best buds. Well, I've used the toilets before, yes. And you've got to go, a man's got to go. Anyway, anyway, and what I will say about Martin, obviously when he was owning the club, it was the club's money that was being spent. It wasn't like an investment from the Edwards family. It might have been, I don't pretend to know the full, obviously they, they used their own money to acquire shares and, and ownership of the club in terms of the transfer fees. I don't think they ever truly massively invested their own capital in the club for the transfers in the way that Gibson and, and Davies had done. Yeah. But what they did do was use a lot of the club's money to make sure that the club stayed in front as a, as a market leader in terms of yeah. the stadium and, and facilities and everything like that. And yeah. the one thing that nobody can question, as much as they might try and as much as they dislike him, is that Martin Edwards loves Manchester United and his knowledge yeah. of the club is is exceptional. And I think I'm not I'm not saying this for any kind of relevance in terms of who comes in to own the club or anything. I just think it you're talking about the who owns the identity of the club and that sort of thing. I do think it would be nice to have some kind of connection there that makes you feel like the club is moving in the right direction because it does feel like for obvious reasons, it has felt like, not it does feel like, it has felt like for that period since 2005 under the ownership that there's been this alienation there. They promised better dialogue after the Super League fiasco. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been better dialogue. And this nope. takeover talk has, has been the proof of that. And you just hope that, that that is something that's addressed. I'm sure it will be. I don't, I don't think, it, because it can't really be much less transparent than, than it has been. So you would think that those kind of things will be better. You're not going to get the local businessman owning a football club anymore, like a, a Gibson or a Davies. They're not going to be able yeah. to come in and, and because the, the amount of the amount of money is massively different. And that's why I returned to the point of what I was saying about us as, as supporters, because we're really the ones in control of that aspect of it for ourselves, because we can't, that's our relationship with the club. It's not anyone else's relationship. We're, we've all got our own experiences, right? And Well, true, um, true. And, and actually, you, through your books, you do a, a great job of documenting the history of, of the club through its different personalities. And <laughs> the book I never finished, it got half written, is 
I was going to say sat on a shelf, but it sat in a Google Drive somewhere. It was on the history of the ownership and from uh, being founded people, like working yeah. people through the, the the Railway Workers Union and what that means in the context of, of modern sport, business and geopolitics. And this stuff does matter. And yes, we are custodians of that and our own experiences and what it means to us. And and uh, United fans have never really been happy with the owners. We, I mean, like there were anti-Edwards chants at Old Trafford. I remember that. He he was yeah yeah many fans hated him, but but in the context of the last eighteen years, he he actually did a a good job. The the club was managed well mostly. I mean, there was a period when it might have gone under, but in the late eighties, famously documented, and but grew from there. Investment was made in the stadium in order to keep United ahead, as it had been in under previous you know, ownership, and and that all stopped when the Glazers took over. And there hasn't been a major development project since they took over. The the, the quadrants were already sort of budgeted and, and planned and signed off before then. That's 18 years of decay in infrastructure, of, of, of pinching every penny, of managing the budgets, which on the transfer front have actually grown in line with in line with growth in in uh, tv revenue but managing that very poorly and and the the inevitable decay of the club as a result of of how they've of that ownership and how they've they've uh, gone about it but that was a long inherent point but the fans haven't have often been unhappy with ownership true but there, there are levels and the glazers are the worst of a cancerous bunch i mean if it's if it's ratcliffe and it's a vanity project our interests are aligned as i said uh will it be good management no idea it's really hard to say isn't it yeah like i don't think you can um and the point made by simon cooper in the the ft piece you can't really transfer business props into football because it's something completely different they're running a petrochemicals company are they 29 separate companies yeah. across every continent is not the same as running sport. And I, I, they have found through the cycling team and Lausanne and OGC Nice that there are some challenges in doing that. Will we get good management from them? No idea. But at least our interests are better aligned. I'm looking for something because honestly, the, all the choices we got in this bidding process were not great. <laughs> well, yeah, there's always the risk that and it's a real risk, and it doesn't matter who comes in with the best of intentions, that change is inevitable. Change is inevitable as, as a point of evolution, but it's inevitable at the point of a takeover because someone's going to come in and say, it was going wrong and that's why I had to buy you. And it's not really going that wrong at the moment. Things are moving in the right direction, and that's the, that's the concern. Is that I know we've talked about that before, yeah, there are there are good people working in in important positions, and they're doing things for the right. I mean, even going to the point of like the Jimmy Murphy statue and all of this stuff, and it just feels like everything's moving in the right direction. And it doesn't matter that it's a slow move or or that we're not challenging for the league this season. As long as it continues to move in the right direction, as long as we're seeing progress, and supporters will always get behind that. And the thing that you don't want to see is someone coming in and saying well, we don't want this person there or we don't want that person there because generally every everything's moving in the right direction. I wouldn't change that much really about what we currently have at the club. Yeah. I, th- I think it's but from the football be side of it. Change that is, yeah, there will be, I mean, yeah, exactly. 
it, it never, inevitably people come in and, and the, the people most at risk are those people in decision-making roles who, who in order to, to gain and control uh, what happens, the new owners will likely change those. So Richard Arnold as CEO, John Murtagh as football director, other, other executives are, are most at risk of leaving when we get new ownership, whether that's Ratcliffe or the, or the Qataris or the Glazers with some private equity backing, which seems less likely now. They're, they're all at risk, I would say. That's just how corporates work. There's there's not been much stability in executive positions, even under the Glazers. Like they got rid of a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of people left the last couple of years. So there's already been changed and likely will be under new ownership. And, and, and you just hope that in doing that, as you say, you don't disrupt the the forward movement that United do have at the moment. To, to be determined, we could just do with a new owner, though, couldn't we? But let's move on. Bournemouth at the weekend. Bournemouth, interesting club. Of course, they're owned by, they've got new owners. They're owned by uh, private equity, American private equity now, who who I think probably is one of the better ones, right? Because he's, he's gone into Bournemouth and said, hey, I want to listen to what you want. And he literally said, I- I'm not coming in here thinking I know everything and I know better than all of you. Right? I want to learn. So they, they, they seem to be moving in the right direction. They are safe, just about not mathematically yet but they probably are aren't they yeah. 39 points so they can they can in theory be caught but I, it's like it would take a big it would take a swinging goal difference and for them to lose and for Leeds to win three in a row which they're never going to do and all of that kind of stuff so they they are pretty much safe Bournemouth which is a good effort for them I think no there was talk about Gary O'Neill at one point being a contender for manager of the season I think that's fair I think he's done really good there were long periods and I don't know if this is praise or criticism, there were long periods in this season that I didn't even realise Bournemouth were back in the Premier League and we've even played them. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> but they've, they've been really good. They've picked up a lot of good wins. I don't think... I remember going down there before when, when they were in the league and having a couple of embarrassments. I remember was it was the lad who played for his king when he flicked the ball over yeah. Lindelof's yeah. head in, in the box, in the penalty box, in the six-yard box, I should say. Flicked it over his head and scored. Yeah. They don't seem to have that sort of ingenuity, <laughs> ingenuity to defeat a United player like that. But they've picked up a number of impressive wins. And, and since I did realise that they're back in the league, which was around April time, they've, they've got some good wins. <laughs> I think it was around the time they beat Spurs about a month ago. Yeah, well, they, they, they beat Spurs a month ago. They have lost the last couple of games, haven't they? Lost so, the yeah, and if, you, yeah. if you lose to Chelsea... Yeah, things going wrong. Thing, things are going bad. Yeah, if you've lost to Frank Lampard in the last couple of years, then it's a worrying sign. Look in your... the mirror. Yes, ask yourself some hard questions. Yeah, we we haven't lost to Frank Lampard, have we, in the last couple of years? Yeah, no, very true. I mean, their season is tailing off. They thought they got enough points, and it maybe the intensity's gone a little bit, which hope, hopefully, hopefully, is true. Yeah, United need those kind of opponents. I mean, they. they... I'm I'm still toying with whether or not I thought it was a good performance against Wolves. I thought we were in control of it. Wolves traditionally they've yeah. been bad opponents for us to play against, but this is obviously a different Wolves side. And I thought we played fairly well and 
there were some good individual performances and but maybe maybe it was the fact that Wolves we played Wolves at a convenient time because we're at the end of the season and those are the kind of opponents that we need to face and Bournemouth will not have that I mean, the, the, any intensity that's going to be in their game is going to be because of the fact that they're playing Manchester United at home so you can't discount that but United do have a little bit of an edge that was back against Wolves. You would yeah. imagine Garnacho is going to start, which is going to be good news. Um, yeah, yeah. Even even something as little as the Garnacho thing, and, and, and Rashford, you would expect to go through the middle if he's back, and it looks like he if will he's be. back. Yeah, yeah. That you would expect that United have got enough to to get through that, and really, that's the key game now. Yeah, all right, Chelsea at home and, and Fulham at home, but if they if we defeat Bournemouth. It's a massive result in in the top four race, and yeah. I would imagine that there's a great level of focus going into that because of that reason. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 huge. I mean, it's huge. Obviously, obviously, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I mean, like you, I thought United yeah, played against Wolves. There was a period where the sort of like working its way into the the final third uh, and United would have a pot shot and they weren't creating chances for a, for a, quite a period of that game. It's just like a bit Van Hal-esque, but they did in the end, it was 27 shots or something like that, which is a hell of a lot. So that is definitely not Van Hal-esque. So in the end, it, it, it was an, a solid win. Looks very good on paper when you look at the, the stats and stuff. I don't think this was, was United at their very, very best. They still feel like they're running on fumes somewhat, don't they? It's a very, very long season. I think a lot of them are knackered. It's been very good. They've had two midweeks off exactly, the last couple yeah. of weeks. I think yeah. they'll make and they'll have a week off before the, the cup final as well. That yeah, makes a big difference. We've just got this little sprint to the end now, which is Bournemouth, Chelsea, then Fulham in the next 10 days or so. And we, we could have... Winning two trophies, getting back into the Champions League, that's an 8 out of 10 season, basically, from where we were. Maybe not in historical terms, but for at least from no, where cool. we were. It's a, it's a very it's a very good first season. Oh, hang on a minute. But losing a couple of games and losing in the cup final, getting annihilated by City, that's going to feel like a 5 out of 10 season, isn't it? Well, <laughs> so. yeah, that definitely will be the case in, in that scenario. But winning a couple of cups and getting to the top four... I'm not really that fussed, but top four for what it represents getting into Champions League and, and the financial it's, it's status, yeah. Okay, but winning two trophies and finishing high up the table, of course, that's an eight out of ten season, and it, and that is historically speaking as well. That's yeah, know, like nine nine out of ten is winning the league, and ten out of ten. At which United have been very fortunate to have a few of those ten out of ten. It's, 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 it's a treble, yeah, or and, a league and another trophy. Do you know, yeah, and, and that's we've been spoiled. So, with so that. do we go to eleven if you win a trophy then, and and do it by not having state funded wealth behind you? Just you know. well, uh, well, if you win a treble, that's an eleven out of ten, right? That's that's the I would say nine point five for like doubles and everything like that, but ten ten out of ten for. For the treble or eleven, if you've done it with homegrown players, and it's not Manchester City and their current yeah. guys, but yeah, but I, I do think there's a, I, it's an eight. How would it not be an eight out of ten season, especially playing the way that they did? And so let's let's because a lot of people will say the Mourinho thing. Now, winning two trophies 
like Mourinho did in his first season and getting into the top four or three. Winning. <laughs> don't don't forget the community the people, shield. Of all the people <laughs> I expected to, to use Jose Mourinho's status against me, I didn't think it would be you. So, <laughs> so two, two and a half Time trophies in his first in season. But champion, Champions League qualification, but through the Europa League. Was that an 8 out of 10 season under Mourinho? I, seven, seven out of 10. But then he, he took he took that number and he poured petrol all over it and he set it on fire. Then he pissed all over that. And and so it's hard to see what Mourinho achieved there because, yeah, second, 81 points or what it was, three three trophies and maybe mixing, jumbling up seasons there. But but then he took that and, and smashed it all to pieces. But, but it is about... The feeling, right? Just to return to that yeah. point that I was saying, it's about the feeling, and you feel that the club is moving much more in the right direction than it felt at this point under Mourinho. Even you were thinking we needed to get into the Champions League to attract the quality of player to come into the team. That's what we were thinking at the time. Now, that's more muddy water, but it doesn't really matter because it's not about getting the bigger name players, it's about getting the right players. And Tenog, for whatever reason, it feels like we're moving more in the right direction now a year in, into his reign. And so that's why Champions League qualification is important because of yeah. because of the, the fact that it Progress, supports status. him. Progress, status, yeah. Yeah, it's a, but what I mean is it supports him in what he wants to do with the club rather than right. it being like a we need that status to get in some big names. Like it seemed like under Mourinho and Woodward, it seems much more directional and, and safe in that regard so the idea of getting there feels like well we'd, we'd still be on a, a decent track with Ten Hag but going where we want to be a lot sooner Champions League qualification is obviously pivotal obviously yeah it speaks for itself speaks for itself it's pivotal for that so yeah big big sort of 10 days for United but I, I feel a lot more confident than I did after I can't even remember the teams that we lost against now recently who, who, who did we lose against oh West Ham when we lost to West, West Ham, Ham. Yeah. I was feeling I was oh I'm not sure about this but the way I, we were so professional against Wolves it was a really professional performance that I'm kind of confident that we're going to see that on on Saturday and if we do then that's a massive step into Champions League yeah 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 yeah, and having this week off, I think I think I really do do think it makes a difference. So I'm I'm feeling fairly confident now. I was pretty pretty down, pretty down after those two defeats. West Ham away was dreadful, wasn't it? But yeah, this is it's away from home. Yeah, it's record away from home is terrible. But I think it it does. Yeah, the performance against Wolves is a tick up. The rest, the fact that it doesn't shouldn't matter for Bournemouth. Although the four people that can fit in their stadium will obviously be up for it because United are in town. <laughs> one more step and then it's just we take one win from Chelsea or Fulham to uh, secure that top four. Assuming Liverpool win their final games as well. Looks very much like they will. All right, should we leave it there? That's a long trawl through City, Arsenal, Bournemouth. You're welcome, listeners. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. And thanks, Ed, for joining me on my 5,000-hour rant at the start of the podcast. Thanks for joining in. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks, see you next time.